Yeah, and even sophisticated clients, like mm. even big corporate clients, um, struggle with this, right? Like if the, you know the, uh, the Bank of Montreal in, in picking between law firms, they're getting better and better at figuring out the price element mm. uh, and, and keeping the firm to a litigation budget, but they still don't have good ways to say, you know, is Borden, Ladner, Gervais better than Tories, right? And in what way is it better or worse? And welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. I'm Julie McFarlane, also sometimes known as Prof. Julie Mack, and I'm the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. This week, I'm on my own. Dana is taking a well-deserved and long-overdue vacation. So I'm going to be introducing our podcast today and our outro has been done by a self-represented litigant, Randy Drusen, whom I'll tell you a little more about in a moment. Our topic this week is how the legal profession is responding to many, many calls and many debates about change. And my guest is Professor Noel Semple, who is my colleague here at Windsor Law, as well as a member of the NSRLP Advisory Board. Noel has worked on issues around legal regulation, in other words, how far the the legal profession should be self-regulating and how far government might intervene and provide oversight for a number of years now. And his book is called Legal Services Regulation at the Crossroads. It's a fascinating review of how jurisdictions all over the world deal with this issue. We've heard a lot of talk about this issue more recently as Ontario and now British Columbia struggle with just who can offer legal services. How far should the profession be allowed to decide that question and how far should government step in? So I'm going to be talking to Noel about the reasons for the self-regulation tradition and also the contemporary critiques and issues that are raised by the consumers of legal services. We're going to also talk about another topic that is very important for us at NSRLP and Noel has done some great work on, which is figuring out how law firms can both make a profit but also offer affordable legal services. Noel calls this hitting the sweet spot, and he has done some work for this for the Canadian Bar Association. His book on this came out last year, and he's going to be talking to me about how he believes law firms can offer affordable services, for example, unbundled services and fixed fee services, but still make a profit. And finally, he's going to talk about a new piece of work, which looks at how we evaluate as consumers how effective the legal services that we pay for really are. And as Noel points out, we really don't have any tools for doing this, uh, whether someone is new to law um, or whether they are themselves trained as a lawyer. None of us really have a way of figuring out whether legal assistance that we are paying for is giving us good value for money and what some of the factors are in quality of legal assistance. So Noel has some very interesting new ideas about that that we're going to be talking about. So first of all, let's listen to my conversation with Noel. Noel, thank you very much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to an in-depth conversation with you about your fantastic work. 
I first read about you and your work uh, before your book came out on the legal profession, Legal Services Regulation at the Crossroads, and that was 2015. And of course, I know for several years before that, you were actively speaking and writing about the need to question the holy grail of the legal profession, that lawyers would regulate themselves. In other words, set their own standards and best practices rather than have government control this. Now, your book does not argue for or against self-regulation, but it does take a very long, hard look at the consequences for clients and how self-regulation might work better in a more consumerist, client-centric model. So for the benefit of our listeners who may be wondering, why on earth does the legal profession get to regulate itself? Could you begin by saying a little about what the historical rationale is for this? Uh, Thanks, Julie. It's a real pleasure for me to be part of such a illustrious group on such well-received and uh, impactful podcast. So in terms of the historical rationale for self-regulation in the legal profession, it comes down to the idea of independence. There's a notion that the legal profession in upholding the rule of law. And it's not complete nonsense, right? I mean, there definitely are countries in the world where the state, a tyrannical or totalitarian state, uses lawyer discipline. So they'll disbar or threaten lawyers who stand up right. uh, for people against against the government. Right. I know that without getting into those examples, which I don't think people are going to expect to see in the Canadian justice system, there are still questions that people are asking about, well, if not the government, is it really the right way to go about this to let the legal profession regulate itself? And this comes up often when we talk to self-represented litigants, and they are unclear why, in a way, lawyers are accountable only to themselves in that way. So can you talk a little bit now, and this is what your book does, of course, so well about the problems and the difficulties here. Yes, well, there's definitely problems and difficulties. We have uh, a problem of lawyer centricity, self-regulation for all its virtues. The risk that it leads to is uh, a regulatory scheme which excludes client awareness of the reality of client Mm. needs and excludes participation by non-professionals in the system itself. And uh, I think it's important to move away from thinking of government regulation and lawyer self-regulation as a a pure dichotomy. There's, you know, sophisticated regulatory regimes combine those ideas in lots of different ways. And what we see at the moment in uh, the United Kingdom and Australia are efforts to to preserve what's best about self-regulation while at the same time injecting some of the you know, very necessary innovation, uh, competition, and client centricity, which, which our system sometimes fails to deliver. So in those examples, Noel, and I know you discuss these in your book, there is the possibility of there being some government oversight, some of you like government pressure almost to persuade the profession to undertake innovations that might be in the interest of their clients, but they still retain an ultimately self-regulating model. 
Yes, I think that's a way to put it. And this is not entirely foreign in Canada. So, for example, um, your listeners, I'm sure, have been following the, the SAG of paralegal family practice right. in Ontario. Yes. And, and you've been obviously one of the leaders in, in moving that uh, that agenda forward. Uh, and there's a very strong access to justice argument for expanding the work that paralegals can do to help people with family law needs. And that's an area where the Ministry of the Attorney General has applied some subtle and in some cases perhaps not so subtle pressure on the law society. So Canada is probably the country in the world in which self-regulation is most firmly entrenched. But even here, it's not an absolute rule. And of course, we did see a certain amount of speculation as to what might happen if the Law Society in Ontario ultimately rejected the idea of paralegals after the government had put so much time and effort into the Boncala review. Can I just ask you to give another example, because I think this is one that is really important to people too. I know that in certain parts of the world, in New South Wales, for example, where I was at the University of Sydney last year, there are oversights of the law society there in relation to charges and costs. And there is a whole code of practice that the government has put together that the society has had to accept in relation to transparency and, and complaints about costs. So is that another way in which we could see government playing a little bit of a role here? So I think it, it could well be. In my view, regulation of fees um, is woefully inadequate in Canada. You know, there's, uh, there's way too much scope and discretion for... Well, to... there's no constraints, except for the market. There's the market constraints. I mean, in principle, fees have to be fair and reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. there's a sort of the taxation and assessment principle by which you can complain to a judge who will assess a lawyer's bill. But there's there's almost no detailed guidance of the type which we see in, mm. in New South Wales, for example. You know, whether it's the government that uh, that does it or, or the law society, I, I wouldn't give up necessarily on the law society's ability to do that. I think we've seen some progressive uh, yeah. changes to regulation of contingency fees, which I think are is, is tighter than it, than it used to be. But certainly, I think for the government to communicate to the law societies that it is there and there is kind of a backstop and paying attention, I think can be kind of a healthy, creative form, form of oversight and something which kind of spurs the law societies to always take really seriously their public interest mandate. Well, that leads me really to the next thing I wanted to raise, which is I think you and I both recognize that part of this question of self-regulation or not is about public confidence in the legal profession and you know where there is apparently a very hands-off approach that makes people feel I think somewhat pessimistic about the ability of the, the profession to respond to public needs and the needs that we see at the moment of course are many many people who cannot afford legal counsel so do you think that there is room for optimism about change here and is it going to require the more active involvement for example of the public within organizations like law societies in order to bring those changes about? I think it's a really important time to ask that question. In my view, the, the paralegal practice piece is a very important test. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and in British Columbia as well now, of course. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So, so really across the country. And there's sort of a phenomenon with self-regulation where often a law society, and the same thing happens with bar associations in the United States, they'll have some sort of subcommittee, like a new practice dimensions subcommittee or a uh, licensing reform subcommittee um, that will go off and produce a 
report, which is often very progressive and very liberal and very open to things like paralegal practice uh, or alternative business structures. But then the report comes back before the sort of main governing body of the Law Society of the Bar Association. Right, and it tanks. And it tanks. Yeah, it's never heard from again. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a consistent pattern, um, which demonstrates both on the one hand that there are you know progressive and very open-minded and very public interested people working in self-regulation but also demonstrates that they're often not in the majority. But they may be outnumbered. Exactly. I wasn't uh, very pleased with what happened with the alternative business structures debate. Um, right. Your listeners may know that this is the whole question of whether we should be opening the door to some uh, non-lawyer ownership of law firms and goal of promoting more, more innovation and bringing some of the kind of creative and entrepreneurial industry that we see in other industries. Right, where uh, you can have different professionals under one roof sharing costs. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And that was a very active debate debate uh, mm. in legal services regulation in Canada four or five years ago. Now it's basically dead right. and nothing nothing has changed. So I will be very disappointed if the paralegal conversation plays out in the same way. And what about the role of the public here? Do you think that that's going to make a difference? I mean, again, to give the example of New South Wales, I know that there was very active involvement of lay representatives in the development of that scheme to have oversight of fees and costs. Yeah, well, I mean, I have to say, watching the National Self-Representative project has really kind of changed the way I think about that in the sense that the number of, you know, members of the public, self-represented litigants, um, other litigants, just interested people who you've been able to bring together um, as a form of, uh, and exert that kind of pressure is, is really impressive. I would say that, you know, in Canada, compared to Australia or England, we don't have the same tradition of consumer activism. Canadian consumers tend to be a bit more passive. Mm-hmm. So I think the public pressure is important. If, if I had to point in one particular direction for who should be kind of putting the pressure on, I would point at the competition bureaus and at provincial governments. Interesting. So I want to move on to something else that you have written um, about that we have found tremendously useful here at the project. And this is your paper for the Canadian Bar Association last year, which you called Hitting the Sweet Spot, which is which is basically a way of promoting and arguing for a viable profit-making business model of legal practice that nonetheless provides services that are far more affordable and far closer to what we hear people saying that they actually want. In particular, for those clients that you call personal plight clients, in other words, people who have family law issues, employment issues, issues that relate to their personal lives, perhaps estates and planning. So say a little bit more about what that sweet spot looks like that the profession, uh, we would like the profession to be so much more interested in. Right. So the sweet spot refers to practice models for these personal plight law firms. Um, And the sweet spot is basically an area where access to justice and high quality professionalism and profitability intersect. So, so the idea for the book came from, from recognizing that, you know, there's lots of legal services out there which are high quality but completely unaccessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's other legal services that are sort of legally aided in uh, clinic sector where it's a non-profit model. But it's only available to a very few people because exactly. it's publicly funded. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So that what we're really missing is a sort of private sector mm-hmm. 
models which uh, deliver high quality but highly accessible services and, and do so within the assumption that you know these are going to be profit-seeking law firms. So, so the book is based on a series of interviews I did with lawyers across the country who do this work, um, identifying practice models which can help bring a, a firm into that area. And um, a lot of it has to do with the way fees are structured. It also has to do with, uh, and here it draws heavily on, on, on your work, Julie, on you know unbundled and limited scope services right. uh, and t- approaches which empower clients and sort of explore new ways to divide labor between firms and clients. And then also models which do rely on uh, kind of external investment, on whether there are ways to scale up legal practice in a way that, that we often don't think about in terms of law. I think it's very interesting that what you have articulated so well, and we'll, we will be putting up the, the link to this material, of course, on the, on the podcast website, is, is a model that can make business sense, but there is still an enormous reluctance on the part of many people in the profession. Not all, and we do have a growing national directory of professionals assisting self-represented litigants, which includes people offering these types of different services. But there's still an enormous resistance to change. And I suppose that's because there's an implication that what you used to be doing was wrong. So do you think that we are starting to see a change in culture here, especially amongst younger lawyers, when it comes to embracing these kinds of new business models? It's the million dollar question, right? I mean, to what extent does that type of change actually happen? And it's very easy to uh, find examples of pe- people who are doing wonderful things. I Individual mean, just, ones, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, just going through your website and the directory of, uh, of, pe- of firms which, which do this work is, uh, is in many ways very heartening. Whether it's mainstream or not, I, I, I don't feel like it is mainstream mm. yet, um, mm. as, uh, as, as you've said. You know, I think in some ways the system still works for, for a lot of lawyers. Like it's, you know, we, we hear about how everything's going to be changed and thrown on its head. But, you know, for a lot of lawyers, it's possible to do make a very good living doing things the way that they've they always, always done they always them. Have. Right. Yeah, that's right. right. Because if you charge $500 an hour, you don't actually need that many clients to make your life full still. That's right. I want to move us now to talk about your new work, which I have to say I'm not familiar with yet because you're just, I believe, about to bring this out. But it's a topic that I find absolutely fascinating. And your premise is that regular clients have a lot of difficulty evaluating whether or not they're being given quality legal services. And this is something that I think speaks directly to uh, what we hear a lot at the project from people who have been the consumers of legal services. You know, there has been, I think, traditionally a certain amount of acceptance on the part of clients that if their lawyers are doing it, it must be okay because they're charging them big bucks. But this generation of consumers is a little more questioning. So talk about what you think we could do that would give a more empowered consumer information that they could use to really evaluate the effectiveness of legal services. Right, yeah. So so the paper is called Measuring Legal Services Value. And the, the idea came actually when someone asked me to uh, to refer, to, uh, to give them some names of lawyers in a, in a particular niche. And when I first got this request, I thought, well, this should be really easy. I'm like, I'm a lawyer. I'm a law professor. I mm-hmm. talk to lawyers all the time. And I thought I should be able to give this person um, not just a name, but probably two or three names and some right. sense of how law firm A compares to law firm B right. and you know what, what they might want to think about in choosing between them. 
And I found I was completely unable to do it. I, like it was actually a struggle just to come up with one or two uh, firms that did what this person was looking for in this particular area. And why was that difficult? Well, say? it was difficult because there we have no. Um, we, we're, it's a very information poor environment. It's yeah. very, we don't know much yeah. about law firms. And even insiders like you and I don't really know how people deliver quality exactly. services inside their businesses. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And even sophisticated clients, like mm. even big corporate clients um, struggle with this, right? Like if the, you know, the, uh, the Bank of Montreal in, in picking between law firms, they're getting better and better at figuring out the price element mm. uh, and, and keeping the firm to a litigation budget, but they still Still don't have good ways to say, you know, is Borden, Ladner, Gervais better than Tories, right? And in what way is it better or worse? So, so the premise of the work is that we we lack mechanisms, we lack good metrics to evaluate legal services value, and and even more, we lack even a good theoretical working definition of what legal service value is. So, is this an access to justice issue too? It is an access to justice issue because empowered consumers. Mm need to be informed consumers, mm. right? And, you know, we've been waiting for 50 years for government funding or pro bono or whatever to make legal services universally accessible. It's not happening. Nope. So in some ways, we're falling back on the market. Right. And, uh, you know, a functional market which delivers accessible, high-quality legal services to people, to or, you know, normal people, to make competition work, you need to have consumers who can tell good from bad right. and compare high, high cost with low cost. Uh, so, so the paper proposes a definition of legal service value, but it's meant to be a useful theory which, which can actually support um, objective, reliable measurement approaches, which in turn fosters access to justice because it creates more empowered and informed consumers. This may be somewhat of an unfair question, but I, I have to just put it out there before we move on from this. Having developed what I'm sure will be an extremely credible theory of legal value, legal services value. How hopefully you that law firms will begin to actually solicit this information from their consumers so that they will also have some sense of how well they're doing? Somewhat hopeful. I think that, and this is, um, I relied heavily on your book for the, the idea of the sort of a client feedback questionnaire. That's mm. kind of a, a, a part of, of what makes this happen. Um, and there's various other techniques by which firms can start to systematically gather information from their clients. I wouldn't uh, count on law firms to do it by themselves without a push. I mean, coming back to kind of the same thing we were saying about mm. self-regulation, uh, you know, self-regulation, like law firm responsiveness works best when there's a little bit of an outside push. But most businesses want information about how well they're doing. They do. They want information about how well they're doing. And they also are very interested in, um, in, in quality marks. So mm. one of the things that we're seeing a little bit emerging in England is these sort of um, objective quality marks that communicate to the market that this firm meets various best practices. So, Noel, in closing, and I've never actually, although I've known you quite a while now, I've never actually asked you this question directly before. I first read about you and the work you were doing when you were, I think, postdoc at the University of Toronto. It was about 2012. I just started doing the self-rep research. And I noticed that there was this young postdoc student at the U of T, one of the most traditional institutions in the country, actually daring to talk about the possibility of deregulation of legal services. Not 
promoting any one particular model, but making that a conversation topic. Something that I think lawyers have been getting, you know, the heebie-jeebies about talking about even for years and years. And um, I know that, you know, like me, you do take the long-term view here, that this is about trying to promote change in a way that doesn't scare people off, that keeps people in the conversation, that is pragmatic. But there is also a certain amount of guts involved in standing up and saying, let's talk about something that absolutely nobody here really wants to talk about. I am an optimist. I think I'm sort of, um, that's just by by character, an Mm. optimist. And I see a lot of really good people doing really good things, right? Even in the most traditional places. You know, like I think a lot of the benchers and people working in the Law Society of Ontario take this very seriously. Mm -hmm. The idea of access to justice really resonates with lawyers, which doesn't necessarily mean that they are on board with all of the things that must logically be done if you care about access to justice. But I think most lawyers... That was why they got into this in the first place. Yes, that's right. In their in their personal work, yeah. it's why they got into the first place. And on a policy level, I think many lawyers find it deeply unsettling that... And they know that the, the law's promises are not made in a way which can be realized by, by average people and that they, they feel quite disturbed by that how that undermines the intellectual premise of, of the legal profession. And that does create, I think, willingness to, to talk about these things and, and make some change. Um, you know, I guess it's sort of what the tension we've been talking about throughout this discussion is that to what extent can you expect that to happen from within the profession? Mm-hmm. To what extent do you need to mm-hmm. look for uh, voices on the outside that can, can sting and spur some of that change? Well, at the moment, your voice is an extremely important voice inside and I would say outside the profession. So thank you, thank you very much for doing this, Noel, today. For our outro today, I asked Randy Drusen, who is a Toronto-based author and journalist and a former self-represented litigant, to record her reflections on what Noel talks about in his interview. One of the issues that she raises is one that we are going to be covering in a special episode in next season's podcast, and that is how the Law Society of Ontario manages and responds to complaints against lawyers brought by members of the public. Let's listen to Randy. I found uh, Noel's comments very interesting overall, and uh, especially regarding self-regulation. Now, I understand from his comments that the legal profession is self-regulated because lawyers have to remain separate from the state, that lawyers have to protect members of the public from the state. But that begs the question, who protects members of the public from the lawyers? Like, who protects members of the public who are taken advantage of or even abused in some way by unethical lawyers? Uh, The answer to that is, sadly, no one. Of course, a person who is victimized in this way could ask the Law Society to step in, but in doing so, he is asking a club to assess and possibly discipline one of its own members. You have to keep in mind that members of this club, the legal profession, attend the same schools, go to the same conferences, and share drinks at the same holiday parties. So it's not surprising that many self-represented litigants have come to the conclusion that filing a complaint with the Law Society is an exercise in in futility. Now, there are many decent, well-intentioned lawyers out there, but there are many unscrupulous characters 
whose behavior effectively impedes access to justice for many Canadians. And these lawyers will not, not be held accountable for their actions when the legal profession is self-regulated. So this is why I really like the idea of having a hybrid regulatory regime, one that involves the lawyers and the state. I think that would be a big step in the right direction. And I would go even further and suggest that members of the public get involved in some capacity too. I found Noel's comments about unbundled services also very interesting. Now, I don't practice law, and I can't speak about the financial viability of unbundled services from the lawyer's perspective, but I can say that from an outsider's perspective, it's a terrific idea. It allows the individual to access only the legal services he or she needs, whether that is coming up with a theory of the case or just ensuring a factum is formatted properly. So unbundled services provide access to justice for thousands of middle-class Canadians who would not otherwise have it. On a final note, I think it's important for users to be able to assess legal services, and I hope legal professionals and members of the public can work together to come up with effective ways to make that happen. Right now, the only way to assess a lawyer's work is by looking up his reviews on a lawyer rating website. And to be honest, I wonder if many of those reviews are written by the lawyers themselves or their mothers. Bottom line is, I think many steps need to be taken to improve access to justice in Canada, from changing the regulatory system to unbundling legal services. And to those who think this is not a critical issue, I would pose this question. What kind of democracy do you have when the vast majority of citizens have no real access to justice? If you care about democracy, you have to make justice accessible to all citizens, not just the wealthiest ones. In other news, first up in other news... The Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System released a new report entitled 18 Ways Courts Should Use Technology to Better Serve Their Customers. The report is an important contribution to the discussion of ways in which technology can be used to improve access to justice and is as relevant here in Canada as it is in the United States. The analysis and recommendations from the report frame this as an issue of improving customer service in the court system. The court user experience requires innovation in order to increase public trust and confidence in the court system. In particular, some of the recommendations include facilitating easier scheduling of hearings using common digital calendar platforms like Google Calendar, iCalendar, Outlook, or others, allowing online payment of fees and other costs, enabling court users to appear by telephone or video conference, simplifying the completion and filing of forms, including electronic filing and eliminating notarization requirements, and delivering automated court messaging about upcoming hearings or missed events, and allowing that messaging to help guide users through the process. Find a link to the full report and all 18 recommendations on our website. Our second update is a follow-up about the various proposals before the Law Society of British Columbia, including establishing a new category of legal practitioners and a proposal on mandatory pro bono work. These proposals were to be debated and voted on during the annual general meeting on Tuesday, October 30th. However, shortly after the start of the meeting, the computer system linking the various locations and allowing members to vote on resolutions crashed. 
This was a much-anticipated debate on how to address issues of access to justice, legal aid, and self-representation, and these important conversations will be delayed for a few weeks, given how many Law Society members want to take part and vote. We've provided a link to an article that also provides a little more context on the proposals that will be voted upon. Lastly, as you may have heard, Pro Bono Ontario recently announced that it will be closing its court-based help centers in Toronto and Ottawa on December 14, 2018, due to a lack of stable long-term funding. Pro Bono Ontario's court-based help centers provide critical assistance for litigants who can't afford a lawyer. The centers help SRLs navigate the court system by providing a range of critical services, including legal information, legal advice, court form completion assistance, and duty counsel representation for many matters. The centers help secure access to justice for some of Ontario's most vulnerable people. The centers also provide exceptional value to the justice system and the public at large. They provide a return on investment of approximately $10 for every $1 invested, and have proven to be a highly cost-effective means of providing pro bono legal services and facilitating access to justice. There's a petition on change.org and more details there of what you can do to reach out to the Attorney General and the Legislative Assembly of Ontario to ensure that Pro Bono Ontario receives stable long-term funding. The closure of the help centers would further exacerbate Ontario's access to justice crisis. That's it for this week of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week for a conversation with Jonathan Rudin, the Executive Director of Aboriginal Legal Services. We talk about why it's important to have a service specifically for Aboriginal people and also Gladue reports. 